All right. Good to see you, Angela. I think I have a sheet for you. Okay. All right. So Nehemiah chapter eight, and uh, we've been on uh, this chapter. I think this is the third week. But uh, there's a lot in this chapter, and there's a lot of good things in this chapter, and so I kind of want to dwell on that. Um, today, January the 14th, 2024, for those of you on the tape, uh, lesson number, or lesson 11 on the, the Jerusalem project, and we've seen so far in the book of Nehemiah, he had more on his mind when he came to Jerusalem than just building the wall. Okay, so so far what we've seen was, well, number one, the walls were rebuilt. And they were rebuilt in a record time. And the people knew that God was in it. And even the enemies knew that God was in it because it just got done so quickly and so efficiently. And so uh, we saw that happen. And then we saw those people that was in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, a lot of them were in debt. Uh, they had sold their land and even sold their sons and daughters into slavery or to be bondmen. And th- all of that was restored under Nehemiah. We saw the bloodlines was checked specifically with the priest. He wanted to make sure the bloodlines that nobody had kind of got in there that shouldn't have been. And then we saw positions fulfilled for the city, basically for the protection after they built the walls, they put the gates back on, they put uh, people in place to, to guard to guard the walls and to open the gates. And then as well as it, they put, put people in positions for the temple. So everything was up to chapter 8 was just about where Nehemiah wanted because Nehemiah, when I look at Nehemiah by studying uh, this book out, you know, I really see that he has a heart to get the people to the point where they can worship God freely. Because that wasn't happening. There was so much junk around. There was so much rubble. There were so much things in their life. They were just trying to survive. And yet when Nehemiah heard that, God just pricked his heart. And he's like, you know, I need to get do what I can to get these people back to the heart of worship. And you know, that reminds me of a song by, uh, I think it was Michael W. Smith. You remember the song, I'm Getting Back to the Heart of Worship? And I was looking at that this week. That song was actually uh, written and uh, sung also by a man by the name of Matt Redman. I didn't know him. But um, that's where they are. They're getting back to the heart of worship and things are starting to really snap here in chapter 8. And so we've seen, you know, what takes place. And what we see here is uh, there's a movement going on. There's like a church-wide or a people-wide movement to get back to God. And so uh, that's kind of right where we're at. So on our handout review, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12, Nehemiah's back to the Bible movement. So I put that in this week. And because I realize that anytime you have any real revival... Anytime you are uh, have a a large church movement, it needs to center, and it should always center on getting back to God's Word. That's what revival is all about. You know, we don't hear much about revival today, but when I was a younger person, you would hear, "Oh, church was having a revival," or "I'm going to this revival," and you know, and and to a degree that what took place at the revival, 
the Bible was preached, right? And it was like, guys, we need to get back. We need to get centered back on God's Word because we've been getting a little lax. Okay? And then you had these, you know, and then on the other side of that, you had these Pentecostal guys that was doing their tent revivals too, you know? And I think they were just, I heard a story once about uh, a man that was at one of these tent revivals and why he went, I don't know, maybe he's like me, he's just curious. And so this man's at a tent revival and, then, and they're speaking in tongues and it's just going crazy. And finally this man stood up and he goes, this is a sham, guys. This is a sham. She go, he goes, I speak I speak Latin and everything that this woman's been saying up here in tongues, it's not tongues, it's Latin. I understood everything she said. This is a sham. And one of the ushers walked up to him and said, you know, and goes, well, you know, here's the thing, guy. He goes, we're having a good time, so just sit down and be quiet. <laughs> okay. So a lot of times people go to church just to get their fix. Just to, just to get their fix for the week or, or, you know, let's go in and have a, uh, you know, everybody wants to say that, you know, a worship service is all about the songs. Well, no, that's just part of it. The worship, you know, you hear people say, well, I'm the worship, the worship director at our church. You're the pastor? <laughs> no, I'm the music director. I go, well, that's just part of it, but that's what the world kind of thinks. And so, um, a church movement or a back-to-the-Bible movement is always centered on the Word of God. And it always has been and it always will be. If this church, God forbid, gets off of teaching the, the, the Bible, God will just shelve them and He'll use another church. He'll pull them up. And we've seen that all the way down through church history. And we've seen the Baptist. We did a... Uh, I think it was about a year ago we did the Baptist heritage study that we went through. And we've seen the Baptists have pretty well stayed along the line because they followed the book. But even they get out of whack. And so God just uses the group, the people that obey His Word. He doesn't care who you are. If you obey His Word, He's going to use you. And so uh, I've seen that in, in my life just... You know, looking at churches and being involved in churches. And when you leave God's Word, God leaves you. He just leaves you in the dust because you chose to not obey Him and do what's right. So, that's kind of where I want to be at. So, uh, Nehemiah's back to the Bible movement. And when people have a desire to, and you have three blanks. The first one is to know God's Word. Because in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1 it said, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord commanded to Israel. And again, we've already went through this, but we have a people that want to know God's word. And yet, they, they didn't get there on their own. I'm sure Ezra had been behind the scenes all along trying to get them to this point. So number one, when you have people have a desire to know God's Word, number two, to hear God's Word. Here goes in your blank, if, that, if you have a blank. And then number three, to understand God's Word. And all those we've talked about, uh, you, you know, when the preacher gets up and he preaches, it needs to be God's Word, not his own. It needs to be distinctly read. And he needs to get the understanding of what it says across to the people. Because if they don't, if the pastor just gets up or the preacher just gets up and he preaches, but the people don't understand what he's saying, it's not any good. 
It's just like speaking in a different language. So, uh, when these people have a desire to do this, you basically have a revival breakout or you have a Bible, back to the Bible movement. And then it produces attribute, attributes in our life. And we talked about this. So again, it's just rehash. Uh, number one is sorrow. And why do you think the people here had sorrow when they heard the law spoken? Because of their sin. Because what else? They haven't been haven't been followed. They didn't know it. They didn't know it. They're like, wow, that's what we should have been doing. And so it, it causes a sorrow in their life because number one, they, they don't know God's word and yet they're sinning and they're doing things and they realize, hey, I, I, I'm a sinner and I'm not doing what God wants me to do. And then uh, it produces joy in their life because now they have God's word and now they can repent and get right with God. There's the first John one nine we see in discipleship. And then it produces a desire now to obey. So I think you have a blank under three, a desire to obey. It's a lot like you could you can kinda sum this all up in when we got saved. Number one. When, when we realize that we are a sinner and we're going to hell, it should produce a sorrow in our life. Okay? But then it produces joy when you realize that Christ Jesus has paid for our sins. And by accepting Him, we can uh, be freed from that penalty of that sin, but yet all the other promises that He gives us. You know, a home in heaven. Carrie and I, I think I was talking to Carrie about this on the car down here. I said, you know, we're all going to, you know, the Bible says when we get to heaven, it talks about mansions. But I'm thinking, do we really need a mansion when we get to heaven? Am I really going to need a bed when I get to heaven with a nice soft pillow and warm blanket? Am I going to need a house? I'm going to be with the Lord. I don't know what I'm going to need. But yet, the Bible still says mansion, so uh, we'll, we'll take that for granted. But yet, when we're with God in heaven, we're not going to need the things we need here. You know, you know, just like right now, you know, it'd be nice if we had a, a whole pocket full of gold coins. I mean, that'd be great. But when we're in heaven, it's going to be what the pavement is. So we're not going to need or want what we have here. But anyway, when, when, when we accept Christ, we realize... Number one, it produces sorrow, then it produces joy, and then it produces a want to know God's Word. Now, how was that when you guys got saved? Hopefully, everybody in here has been saved. When you got saved, it produces sorrow, then it produces joy, and then it produces a want to know God's Word. And if that's not in your life, then something was wrong. It produces a... Man, number one, you want to tell everybody, man, I got saved. I remember little Elijah Branham, he got saved and, and he, he comes up to the pastor and goes, Pastor Brian, I just want you to know I got saved last week. <laughs> like, yeah, he's like this tall, you know, and, uh, but hey, that's what it should be. And, 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 and a lot of us, if you got saved early in life, it, you might be like Elijah and you want to talk about it, but then it kind of wanes for a little bit. But the older you get, the more you realize, hey, this, this was a major deal in my life. And so, you know, I, I, I say it like this. You get saved and you just can't shut up. You just gotta tell people, hey, I got saved. I have a home in heaven. 
You know, you need to get saved. So you have that attitude, but you have you have sorrow, joy, and then baby, and basically a revival breaks out. It should in your life. And so uh, revival basically breaks out here with Nehemiah chapter eight. And so uh, we've we've already went one through twelve, but I want to start in verse thirteen since I've got us all caught back up now. And we're going to uh, basically read to the end of the chapter. And what we're going to see here is basically just a continued revival. Okay, uh, Chapter 8, verse 13 says, And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and he brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the streets of the water gate and the street of the gate of Ephraim. So they're all over the place. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day had not the children of Israel done so, and there was very great gladness. Also day by day, and from the first day until the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. So what we see here is just the revival just keeps going. And so it talks about the second day, because the first days when we've been looking at chapter 8 all the way down to verse uh, 12 is the first day. And I, I made a big deal a couple weeks ago about that day, the first day of the month, the seventh month, was actually the Feast of Trumpets. And so, uh, but now that day is over, and now we're at the second day, but I want to look at who is the group that comes to Ezra. And so the people involved... Uh, under your bullet point down there under the second day where uh, I want you to notice it wasn't the general people. Now, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of that. I can't make of it, well, you know, they got their fill the first day and they just couldn't make the second day. I don't know. Or or they're about taking care of business. I don't understand. I don't know. But here's what I do know. The Bible says that the chief of the fathers and the priests and the Levites... They are the ones uh, that were supposed to and were responsible to teach God's word to the people. So uh, the priests, the Levites, and the chief of the fathers, they come to Ezra. And they come to Ezra to know God's words. So I think you have a blank there under Ezra, to know God's words. And it says words. It doesn't say just the word. Uh, it says, verse 13, says, And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priest and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. 
And I make that out there because we don't just have the Word of God, we have the words of God. Every word is pure in, in our Bible. Every word is pure in the Old Testament. So, so uh, number one, again, the, the, these, these guys come to Ezra because why? They want to know what the law says themselves. Okay? And so I have a question. What had they been doing? And what had they been teaching? They're priests and Levites. That was their job. And yet, if they were having any type of service, they were the ones performing it. So the question is, what what had they been doing? Had they just been having... Uh, uh, it couldn't be having a Bible study if you didn't have the Bible, the words of God. Maybe you're just coming together to meet and have potluck and go home. I don't know. Same thing today. What do churches do if they don't have God's Word, if they have no service? You know, almost every Bible college in America today claims that we don't have God's Word right here. They claim their originals are God's Word, but they don't claim this is God's Word because it's not inspired. So what do they teach? If your church isn't teaching the Bible, what are they teaching? I don't know. Okay, But I know they didn't know, but at least they knew where to go. They come to Ezra because there's something about Ezra that they understood. And so if you want to read Ezra's qualifications, let's just turn back a book, back to Ezra chapter 7. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Now, now we know about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was was more of the kingly line. But we see that Ezra was a priest, and he's from the high priest. And so, uh, these are the qualifications that Ezra had. Now, Ezra got back into the land, uh, and it depends on who... who what historian or Bible scholar you look at anywhere from 11 to 12 to 20 years before Nehemiah had. So you had the original group that came back with Zerubbabel. Then you have a group that comes back under Ezra. Then you have a group that we're dealing with under Nehemiah that comes back with him. Basically, there wasn't a lot of people that came with Nehemiah. He just brought the resources back that they needed to build the walls to get things in order. So most of the people were already there. So Ezra hasn't showed up in the book of Nehemiah yet, but he's been there all along. And so we're going to look at his qualifications. Ezra chapter 7, 1 through 10. And it says... Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sarahiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahiatab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth. i got to stop picking these verses with all these words. It seems like every week I'm doing this. Verse 4, the son of Zeriah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Pinius, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So he's got quite a bloodline, doesn't he? The high priest or in his bloodline. Verse 6, 
This Ezra, who had this pedigree, went up from Babylon and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Almost the same thing that happened to Nehemiah a little bit later happened to Ezra. Verse 7, And there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests and of the Levites and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. Everybody has this all figured out. When he left, when he got there, yeah, and went in one ear and out the other. I know I read that pretty fast. But anyway, it's, it was all, all laid out. Verse 10 is where I want to go. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek 